You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Excited to have you with us. I know we've got some people that are visiting for the first time today. We've got out-of-town guests that are here for Memorial Day weekend. So um, just an exciting time to, to have you here today. School's out, so there's a lot of excitement about summertime and family opportunities. And we had a great time last night hanging out with the youth in downtown Sonoy, eating together and then walking over to the fireworks and um, just a lot of fun and a lot of things that will be coming this summer, opportunities to hang out and, and be a part of our church outside of Sundays. And so I encourage you to be a part of that. And uh, today, starting today, right after the service, we'll have the opportunity for you, if you want to, to join us over at the Schwarting House. Um, they've opened up their house. We're going to have food and an afternoon of fellowship, opportunity to swim in the swimming pool if you want to. And uh, But even if you don't want to swim, just come and hang out. It's a great time to um, just enjoy each other, and we've already had some of that this morning with breakfast, but encourage you to come and, and do more of that this afternoon if you want to. Let me open us up in prayer, and then we'll jump into where we've been in the book of Psalms recently. God, we love you, and we do thank you and praise you for all the ways that you've shown your goodness to us. Um, Lord, we just praise you for your love and for your power in our life, the ways that you've answered prayers in our church recently. Um, God, we pray that you would continue to answer according to our needs. I know there's um, things going on in in the lives of our families where uh, we need you to show up and we need you to exercise your power and your authority. Um, And Lord, we trust you with that. We trust uh, you with the lot lines and the contents of the cup that you've given to us. And uh, Lord, we just praise you and thank you for the chance to be here together today. Thank you for the opportunity to gather on a Sunday to celebrate Not just because summer's starting, Lord, we celebrate a much bigger reason. We celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus, and we praise you and thank you for the hope that the resurrection gives to us, uh, the freedom that you've given us from our sin, uh, the freedom that you've given us from trusting in this world alone. Um, We know that uh, our joy and pleasures forevermore come uh, not from what we experience this upcoming week, but what we're going to experience for all eternity, and so we praise you and thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16 is where we were at on Easter Sunday. So that's the um, first Sunday after our last application Sunday, Easter Sunday. We were in Psalm chapter 16, and this was our second week in Psalm 16. So remember, we talked the first week about the Old Testament kind of perspective and understanding of Psalm 16, the hope that it gave to the Old Testament saints. But then we looked from the New Testament perspective about Psalm 16, because both Peter and Paul preached sermons after the resurrection of Jesus saying, this is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 16. So our summary sentence from Psalm chapter 16, the second week, the terminal threat of Sheol is conquered by the resurrection of Jesus, allowing me to now live faithfully, trusting him with my fears And with my desires, because the fear of death has been replaced with a hope of life forevermore. And so Psalm 16, I want to read to you verses 1 and 2, and then the back half of the chapter. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So a lot of emphasis we made Um, on both weeks about no goodness apart from God. He is the source of goodness for us. And so if we try to find good outside of him, we are going to find disappointment. We may find temporary pleasure, temporary good, but it will not lead to ultimate satisfaction. Verse eight says, I've set the Lord always before me 
Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we talked about how, uh, you know, David's writing this psalm and... There is the hope that he won't be abandoned to Sheol. There is the hope that he won't see corruption. But it's in the New Testament with the resurrection of Jesus where that that hope really comes to fruition, where we see the guarantee of that hope. And that's what Paul and Peter both do in the book of Acts. So Peter in Acts chapter 2, Paul in Acts chapter 13. They both reference this idea of souls being abandoned to Sheol and that not being the case and the Holy One not seeing corruption. And they both tie that to Jesus. They say Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the example. Jesus is the proof that we will not be abandoned because he was not abandoned. And therefore, our hope for eternity is tied to the fact that his sacrifice has been accepted. And so I challenge you this week to not leave the resurrected Jesus because that's the temptation. It's the temptation for our teenagers as they continue to grow and mature and start to come out from under the wing of their parent to start thinking maybe independently or to at least question, what have I been taught and is it valid? That we don't leave the resurrected Jesus. Um, that, that we don't abandon him because he's promised never to abandon us. And if we, if we were to choose to leave him, we're choosing to walk away from what he's made known to us, the path of life, the fullness of joy pleasures forevermore. And so our application from that week, when you're tempted to doubt the power of God or the goodness of God, because those are two themes that we've seen throughout the Psalms, right? The power of God, the goodness of God, even in Psalm 16, the idea of our lot lines is found here. The contents of the cup that we are willingly accepting whatever it is God gives us to drink from, that we trust what he's put in the cup, that we trust the property lines that he's given to us, Um, that when we're tempted to doubt his power, to doubt his goodness, that we're to remember the resurrection is the greatest proof of both, giving us reason to remain close to him and to trust him. It's the resurrection of Jesus that shows both his power and his goodness, that he has raised his son to life from the dead on our behalf so that we too can be saved, so that we can be set free, so that we're not abandoned to shield. That's the hope and encouragement of Psalm chapter 16. If we jump over to Psalm chapter 36, Psalm chapter 36, we talked about God's steadfast love and how it's experienced by those who choose to reject the whispers of sin and instead seek refuge in life for him. Psalm chapter 36, verses five through seven, it says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. His love is experienced by those who choose to reject sin and seek refuge in him. And that's how we find the balance of that message that we talked about that 
sometimes we're, we're, we have a tendency to kind of reject. If we see the message, God is love, for some, for some of us that causes us to cringe a little bit because uh, our culture has hijacked that. They've hijacked that and caused it to mean something that it doesn't, right? That God is love is oftentimes used to say that God loves sinners in their sin and loves them to remain in their sin too, right? That that God is love is that God is so accepting that he's so accepting of every lifestyle that's out there and it's okay to live that way because God is love. And so we hear that and we think it's almost like our, our, our heart and mind responds and says, no, God is not love. And I challenge you and I say, well, that's not the correct response to that, right? First John is very clear that God is love. But it's a matter of us understanding what that means, that he's love. He's loving to those who come and seek refuge in him and through him and leave their sin behind. So in Psalm chapter 36, the first half of the chapter is all about the transgressions that speak to the depths of our heart and how we're wicked and evil. But then it's the second half of Psalm 36 that his steadfast love extends to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright of heart. The idea being that God is love is true in spite of our wickedness in the first part of Psalm 36. So no matter how bad you've been, no matter how wicked and evil you are, God is love and God can extend forgiveness to whatever we've done. But God's love is experienced by those who know him and follow him and rely upon him. So I challenge you this week, be careful that you're not presuming upon God's love to justify your current sin, right? Don't be content to stay in sin thinking, oh, God is love, and so therefore God will will allow me to stay in this condition and be okay with it. No, God loves us enough to pull us out of that. God loves us enough to rescue us and to save us from our sin. That's the message and hope of Psalm chapter 36. We jump ahead to Psalm chapter 67. Psalm chapter 67, verse 1. My God, be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. God blesses his people for the purpose of generating praise among all peoples, meaning that God's care and provision, while meant for our good, is ultimately, ultimately meant to show his goodness to all so that more and more come to know him. We talked about how important that that word selah, that pause in this psalm is to us understanding the meaning of this psalm. My God, or may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And we talked about how if we're not careful, that becomes a very self-motivated prayer. Like, God, bless me, take care of me, give to me. Uh, let your face shine upon me. And we talked about that being like a, a favorable look from God. And so you read this and you're thinking like, are we allowed to pray that way? Are we allowed to pray that God would, would give to us and bless us? We are, we are called to pray that way if we see the importance of why he would do such things. And that's where we see verse two, that your way may be known on earth. You're saving power among all nations. 
let the peoples praise you. The idea being that God blesses us not because of our good works, but because he wants us to put those blessings to work for him, right? God is not giving to us in response to what we've done for him, right? He's, it's not that he's looking at us and saying, oh, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good, let me bless you, and you're not good, so I'm not going to bless you. What's going on here is that we're praying and saying, God, be gracious to me. That, the whole idea there is that I don't deserve your blessing, right? I don't deserve your good to me, but I'm crying out for it. And then that word Selah causes us to pause to then see the emphasis on that next verse. I'm crying out for your goodness. I'm crying out for your grace. I'm crying out for your blessing so that other people will know your goodness, so that other people will praise you when they see you blessing me. So it's a missional focus. It's a missional perspective that we want to see all peoples come to know our God. We want all peoples to come to submit to our King Jesus And one of the ways that happens is when God blesses his people and his people rightfully give him praise and glory for it. Other people are drawn to that. Other people come questioning our hope, right? And they want to know more about the God that we submit to. And so it's a very missional focus here in Psalm 67. That God would bless us, not so our life here on earth can be better ourselves. That that is a byproduct of God's blessing for sure. But the bigger perspective, the bigger picture is, I want you to bless me, God, so I can use that blessing and put it to work for you. I want other people to come to know you. We talked about how God has given me what he has given me for the spread of his worship in this world. But we also talked about how God has withheld from me what he has withheld from me for the spread of worship in this world too, right? Because God also gets glory and praise when he doesn't do things exactly like we would want him to, and yet we're still found to be praising him, right? So I pray for certain things. God doesn't give me those certain things, doesn't give me the spouse I want, doesn't give me the child I want, doesn't give me the job I want, doesn't give me the things that I want, and yet I'm found continuing to praise him. Then the lost world really looks and says, this doesn't make any sense. You should feel disappointed by your God. And yet you don't. You're you're finding contentment in the lot lines. You're finding contentment in the contents of that cup. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's when God really gets the glory and praise, when we're praising him both in the good times and in the bad. Paul talks about that secret contentment in Philippians, right? I found the secret to contentment. I found the way to be content when I'm brought high and I'm brought low. A missional perspective on the ways that God cares for us. And so my challenge to you this week was to pray, to pray that we may own more of God's goodness, to to have God give to us his goodness more and more, but to ask for those things with the goal of leveraging it for gospel purposes. God, bless me, do this in my life so that you can be glorified for it, so that you can be praised for it, and not just from my lips, but from the lips of people that are looking into my life, which is a burden of responsibility on us that as God gives to us, as God blesses us, we have to give glory and honor to him. We can't take the credit for it, right? We can't take the credit and, and be prideful over our own accomplishments or the things that we, we have happening in our life because then we steal the glory from him. And the whole purpose of him giving it to us is so that he can be glorified both from our lips and for the lips of others around us. That's the hope of Psalm 67 is that our God will be gracious to us and he will bless us 
But he's going to give responsibility to us in that blessing, and that's that we would make him known, that we would make his greatness known to those around us. Let's jump ahead now to Psalm 139. Psalm chapter 139. You'll remember this was the chapter that talked a lot about the the omni-attributes of God. Um, His his all-knowingness, his omniscience, his uh, omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere, all the time, always. Uh, his uh, His omnipotence, the fact that he can do anything, that he's the type of God who has all the power to do whatever pleases him. Right? Psalm 139, verse 1. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your head upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We talked about the all-knowing, always present, capable of anything God giving us great assurance, peace, and direction and knowing that he already knows us, is already wherever we go, and has already determined our days. We find hope and comfort in that type of God. These omni-attributes are meant to comfort us. And the way that the psalmist writes here is that David wants us to see, yes, these things are true, but they're true in direct proportion to you. Right, that, that God's omniscience applies to you. God's omnipresence applies to you. God's omnipotence applies to you. Meaning that his, his knowledge, yes, he knows everything in the galaxy and all the other galaxies. All of creation is known by him, and so are you. Everything going on in your life, every feeling that you can't verbalize to your spouse, every, everything that you're feeling that you can't verbalize to a friend or to a parent, like God knows God knows the intricate feelings that we have inside of us. He knows all of it, right? And he goes everywhere that we go. As we step into uncertainty, every day, like we don't think about it that way, but every day is a, is a, is a step into uncertainty because we, we typically don't have a day unfold exactly like we think. God's always with us, and he's always going before us. Because of his omnipresence, he's always there. He's always ahead of us. And still right there with us as we move forward, right? Um, His omnipotence, that he can do anything and everything. And the fact that David highlights the fact that God has woven us in such a way to fulfill the specific purposes that he's given to us to carry out the days that he's formed for us. Not somebody else's days, not somebody else's life. He's given you a specific life. He's given you specific days and he's equipped you for those days. And those don't look the same as everybody else's. He's intricately woven these. He hasn't just responded to who we become. No, he's made us to become who we become. He's done it for specific purposes. He's fully aware of us because he knows everything. He's always with us because he's everywhere. And he's designed us to do great things 
because he's all-powerful, to do great things for him that expose God's greatness further to creation. Now, the application from this week, because there's, there's two different ways of looking at this. One, the unbeliever cringes at this. The unbeliever says, I don't want God to know me that way because I need things to be kept from him. I think I need things to be secretive to him. I don't want him to know everything that I'm involved in. I don't want him to go everywhere that I go because I'm ashamed of some of the places that I go if he's with me. Right? I don't want him to determine my days because I want to do what I want to do and I want it to play out the way I want it to play out. That's, that's the unbelieving response. That's the lack of faith response. But the application for us is that we're to reject, we're to reject the ways of those who are apprehensive or antagonistic about this type of God because they're described as individuals that are wicked. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. But lest we think that David is spiritually prideful himself, he says, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David says, look, if I'm, if I'm in any way um, dismissive of you as being this type of God, if there's anything in me that would want to keep things from you, God, to be secretive in the places that I go and the things that I do there, he says, expose that and then lead me out of that. Lead me away from that. I don't want to be that type of person. Lead me into the way everlasting. So the positive side of application for us is, not only do the negative side, do we distance ourselves from people who don't want to live that way, we pray for God's conviction about our own sin with a desire for him to guide us once again in his everlasting ways. Let's jump back now to Psalm 14. Psalm chapter 14. We looked at two psalms a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, because they're almost identical right? They're, they're so alike in the, in the content and the messaging, but I told you that the difference lies in one seems to be an encouragement to believers, and one seems to be a warning to unbelievers. So Psalm 14, one says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And then verse four says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You should shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is kind of the hope for the believer, that God knows what's going on and God will preserve and save the righteous. But then Psalm 53 still carries that idea of the fool saying in his heart, there is no God. But in that chapter, verse 4 says, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat at my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Right? The judgment that comes upon those who continue to live as though God does not. Right? Those who live as though God does not live, they're going to incur his judgment. That was our summary idea here. Fools reject God and oppress his people, 
but God rejects fools and restores his people. Meaning if we choose to trust God, we have nothing to fear, but if we choose to ignore God, we have everything to fear. We talked about atheism flowing from a desire to live free from divine authority. Right? You don't want that omni-God living in your life. You want to be free from that. That's where atheism flows from. We talked about not living life without God. So even if we may say we believe in God, oftentimes we live life as though he doesn't exist, right? In both these chapters, there's a piece about communication with God, that God's people communicate with him. And that God's people, uh, or God's people that aren't God's people, war against his people. And so I challenged you to kind of self-assess yourself. Do you live like God exists? Do you live like he exists in the ways that you communicate with him? Are you intentional about spending time with him in his word, in times of prayer? Are you communicating with a God that you believe exists? And are you fellowshipping with people who claim to be God followers as well, right? Do you, do you fellowship with believers or do you, uh, and maybe this is maybe more direct applicable to our, our youth, do we, do we tend to look down on people who seem to be doing the right thing? Because it seems like in the school setting, oftentimes not doing the right thing is obviously the more popular thing to do. And it's super tempting to be a believer and to run with the people who don't believe and then to criticize other people who are believers who are doing the right thing. The Bible says believers don't do that. that that's, that's the work of an unbeliever to pray upon God's people, to belittle God's people, to reject God's people, to, to laugh at God's people. We need to put our foolishness aside, put the folly away so that when he comes back, we're not found to be foolish. Jesus is coming. Put your folly away, not, or put your folly away now before you are shown to be foolish later. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 115. Psalm chapter 115. We tied Psalm 115 in with our study in 1 John 5, which is where we've been with our C groups and D groups this month. Because 1 John 5 ends with keeping ourselves free from idols, right? And so Psalm 115, verses 1 through 3 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. He then goes on kind of a, a discourse about why idols fail to deliver for us. Verse 9 says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. We talked about the different tiers of God's people here, small and great in man's eyes, but whether you're in the small group or the great group, he is your help and your shield, right? For all people, he is the help and he is the shield. We said the superiority of God over created idols is seen in who he is and what he does versus what idols are incapable of being and providing, giving us reason to trust him and praise him as we live for his glory and not our own. And the key idea being in verse one, that we live for God's glory and we trust in him over idols because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We seek to bring him glory because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us. No matter what our circumstances, we trust that there's steadfast love and faithfulness to be found there. 
We talked about that people who deconstruct their faith and leave Christianity do so because of what's highlighted in verse 2. Where is their God? When we lose sight of where our God is and what he's doing, we start to filter our circumstances through what we think God should be doing. And we start to interpret what is good, and if we're not getting it, then God is no longer good. Right? Even though the Psalms have already told us, there is no good apart from you. Whatever lot line you give me, whatever content of the cup you give me, that is what's good for me. We start to deconstruct our faith and leave Christianity when we start to say, where's God? Where's his goodness? Where's his love? Where's his faithfulness? But instead, the psalmist here would tell us, turn your focus to deconstructing the idols that you would turn to and see how unfaithful and unloving they are, right? They're made of silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. They don't speak. They don't hear. They don't smell. They don't feel. They can't go with you anywhere. The psalmist would have us to deconstruct our idols, not our faith in God. The reminder in verse 3, our God is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. And we need to let that be enough for us. Idols can't give us the things that we need most. God has the power to provide everything that we need and the power to protect us from everything we don't need as well. I think that's what you see in that idea of help and shield, right? He's got the power to extend help to us, to give us what we need. But then that piece of the shield is that he keeps things from us. And I told you last week, he does not act as a shield where he doesn't let anything bad through. For some of us, we would probably vote for that type of God. Hey, keep all the bad out. Be that type of shield that nothing gets through. But God is so good, and his help is so superior to anything that we could conjure up ourselves that the bad in our minds that he lets through that shield, he uses for good purposes. And that's why he can be trusted. But if we lose sight of his faithfulness and his love and filtering it through that, then we do start to ask the question, where is our God? The psalmist would remind us, oh, he's right there. And he's right there as your help. And he's right there as your shield. Our application last week was, am I living my life with a focus on making his name great in everything that I do? Am I trusting God when he seems absent because I believe he is good? And number three, am I seeing the flaws of other gods I could serve to keep myself free from idols? That's where we've been over the last six weeks. I want to give you two things to remember and two things to do in response to what we've heard. The two things to remember. I think we've seen this consistently over the last six weeks in all the Psalms that have been chosen. The attributes of God, his power and his goodness, and the purposes of God. We see that in his love. Those things together should keep you clinging to God. His power and his goodness, that he is capable of doing everything that you need him to do. And he's good, which means he will do everything you need him to do. And his love is that he will do it for you, right? Because you can believe, oh yeah, I'm sure God is all powerful and I'm sure he's all good, just not to me. No, his love says it's applied to you. And those things should keep you clinging to God. And then number two, the amount of warnings and reminders in Scripture about remaining faithful to God should give us reason to stay alert. Because what we've seen, too, in a lot of these psalms over the past couple of weeks is a warning 
about people who don't live this way. People who choose to, to see things differently, who question God, who doubt God, who don't see his existence, who, who say that there is no God, right? We need to be alert. We need to be alert because we're not, we're not, um, we're not beyond, beyond God sealing us. Like the warnings here are given to us to keep us faithful to him. The warnings in scripture are always real warnings, and God uses those as a supernatural way to keep us clinging to him. All right, so I believe that, that God has had some of you here over the last several weeks to hear this message so that you don't fall away. You need these warnings. You need these truths to keep clinging to him. So see his power, see his goodness, see his love, and keep clinging to him. Take the warnings and run to him. So how do we do that then? These are the things to remember that we need to see his attributes. We need to see these warnings and cling to him. Well, how do we do that? Well, it's super practical for us within the context of this church too. Number one is to have a plan for Bible study this summer in the absence of D groups, right? So what we try to do here at our church, if you've been visiting with us and and aren't fully aware, is our D groups, our discipleship groups for our men and our women and for our young men and young women within our youth group, the goal is to give you what to study, to kind of eliminate the I don't know where to go to study, right? So we're studying the same things together because that's one of the biggest hindrances for people not studying scripture is they don't know where to open the Bible to. So we're kind of giving you guidance. Hey, open the Bible here. Um, and then we're giving you a way to ask questions, like to come and to ask questions within the D group setting, to come and share what you're learning as well, to, to have a, 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 a informal teaching opportunity to express this is what God's showing me through his word. But we take a break from that over the summer because schedules are crazy. But while we take a break from the church calendar side of things, we don't take a break from pursuing God individually, right? So I would challenge you to to go back and, and my suggestion, and I'll post this on the realm, my suggestion would be to go back this summer and read through the Psalms that we've looked at over the past several months to just spend time going back and reading through those because it's there that you will see reminders about God's attributes of goodness and his love and his power to us. But then also to get into the right mindset that when we kick back off our D groups in the fall, that you're ready to invest in those studies, that you're ready to go to God's word and to feast on his word, to be able to gather with other believers to share what God is teaching you. Number two, have a plan for Christian fellowship this summer in the absence of C groups and be prepared to embrace C group fellowship once again in the fall as well. Just because we're taking a break from the formal gathering of of small groups, we don't need to take a break from gathering together outside of Sunday morning because we need the fellowship. The warnings are here in scripture. We need the fellowship. There's gonna be opportunities to gather this summer. I would encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities. Unless you think to yourself, I don't really need that. Remember, there are warnings here in Scripture saying that you do. Because if left to yourself, you'll start to question, where is God? Because you're not seeing his goodness. You need other believers to help you see the goodness that's maybe hidden from you right now. Be intentional this summer. I challenged our Trinity students. I said, like, we're taking a break from school, but we don't take a break from following Jesus. Follow Jesus this summer. That would be my same encouragement to you. Yeah, we're taking a break from the formal calendar piece of our church for a couple of months. But don't take a break from following Jesus this summer. Man, follow him intently. Fellowship with other believers because we need that. We need that. Um, let's turn our attention to 
uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians. I always want to read from this chapter because I think it's so helpful to put us in the right mindset of what it is we're doing and even not doing. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks to the church about the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder to us why we do this. We partake of the Lord's Supper, and we choose to do it here at our church on Application Sunday because I believe it helps to directly tie in with what we're doing today, and that's reminding ourselves that we're to be following Jesus by doing his word. It's what we're to be doing. And by partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're not, we're not adding to our salvation. We're certainly not creating salvation for the first time by doing this today. Um, What we're doing is we're encouraging ourselves and we're encouraging those around us Um, because what we're expressing is that we still believe, right? We still believe in Jesus. We still believe that his life, his death, his resurrection is our only hope in this world. And the only reason we can even have a hope is because of what he's done. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He came back to life so that our souls aren't abandoned to Sheol, so that we can have life forevermore. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do this until Jesus comes back because it reminds us to keep clinging to Jesus. And I can't help but think as as in reading about the the cup piece there that, you know, he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. His death on the cross, he drank that cup. And now he turns around and gives each of us different cups to drink. We saw that in Psalms, right? Different cups to drink, different lives to live. good for us, right? Love for us is what he gives to us in the contents of that cup because he drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. If you didn't pick up the elements on the way in, they're right outside the door. We encourage you to grab those. We've got several that are going to come and read the Psalms instead of singing this morning. We've done this in our Psalm study. We're just going to read through the Psalms that we've looked at today as an aspect of worship, as a means of worship. So we've got different, different people that'll come I'm going to pray for us and and introduce that time, and then Tyson will close us out at the end. You're encouraged to partake of the Lord's Supper at any point as we're reading and uh, worshiping God through the Psalms. God, we love you and thank you. We praise you for the chance to be here together today. Members of our church, non-members of our church, coming together today to partake of the Lord's Supper because what we're saying is that we still believe in you. We thank you for your perfect life. We thank you for your sacrificial death. Thank you for taking our punishment. Thank you for giving us righteousness. Thank you for giving us life through your resurrection. We honor you, glorify you today. We ask that you would continue to lead us as we leave today. That in whatever ways you bless us this week, that it would lead to the blessing of others towards you. That your goodness to us would lead to the nations praising you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.